You are Locked On Zags, your daily podcast on the Gonzaga Bulldogs. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. What is going on, y'all? Welcome to the Locked On Zags podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. I'm your host and longtime Gonzaga podcaster, Andy Patton, moving over from ScoreZag Score and taking over here at Locked On. I want to thank you all for making this podcast your very first listen of the day. Whether you are a new listener to the show, new to my content, or coming over from my previous show, a reminder to please follow and subscribe to this podcast wherever you already get podcasts, and to look out for an upcoming YouTube channel, which is going to start in the next few weeks. For those of you who are more visual or just want to see what kind of setup I have in my podcast studio, speaking of that, I just moved, so things are going to look a little bit different. Hopefully the audio quality is still the same. Been a very exciting couple of weeks in my world, so we're moving. We're hopefully going to be into our actual house in a couple of weeks, but we're temporarily holed up at a family house right now. But in addition to the move, we are, we got Gonzaga basketball. We're back. Folks, we are back. The Zags played their first exhibition game of the season. They won by 54 points against Eastern Oregon on Halloween Sunday afternoon. Excellent games from Chet Holmgren. Excellent game from Julian Strother. We're going to talk all about that. Today is another Mailbag Monday episode. Right after the game ended, we got a bunch of great questions. We're going to talk through them all. First segment, we're talking mostly about game recap stuff. Second segment, we're talking a little bit more about the rotation the lineups, all of that stuff, a really hot topic throughout the offseason that is still going to be heavily discussed as we get into the season. Third segment, we're talking a little bit more off the cuff, some other stuff that's not as related to the game. This is just a reminder for most of you, but for any new listeners, if you want to get involved in Mailbag Monday, there are three ways to do so. You can tweet at me at ScoreZagScore or at LockedOnZags whenever you are thinking of a question. I'll write it up and get it into the next upcoming Mailbag episode. It helps if you tag at Mailbag Monday, but even if you don't, I'm most likely going to write it up and get it in the show. I also reach out on Twitter Sunday morning soliciting questions. You can respond to that tweet and ensure that you will be in the show as well. I also take questions on Facebook and Instagram, which you can find by searching ScoreZagScore and via email as well at AndyPatton013 at gmail.com. A lot of you use that to ask either multiple questions or to write more longer thoughts about your your thoughts about the game or multiple questions at once. Again, it's a, it's a great way to interact. I always respond to those as well, so we can have some kind of dialogue if you'd like. All right, get right into it. Some post-game thoughts. This first question comes from Eric Stoneburner at EA Stone 17 on Twitter, who asks, who is the standout on offense and defense? Yep, simple enough question. For offense, it's got to be Julian Strother. It has to be Julian Strother. For those of you who did not watch this game, it was available, streamable on SWX. I do not know if there will be streams of this game available going forward. So if there are, I strongly suggest checking it out, obviously. Like any Gonzaga exhibition game, it was not particularly competitive, but that's okay. It was a good opportunity to see some of these young guys for the first time uh, ever, for a lot of them, and certainly for the first time in, in more starring roles. Julian was one of those players. He scored 18 first, 18 points all in the first half, did not score in the second half, didn't play as much. Obviously, Gonzaga went deeper to the bench, so that was kind of created more opportunities for other guys to play. He looked fantastic. I mean, he looked so confident. His outside shot was huge. He was one of the only players who was shooting well from the outside, which we will talk about actually in the next question. 
But beyond that, he was competent driving to the hoop. He was confident in transition. He just, he looked, I mean, he's a certified scorer. Like there is no other way to describe Julian Strother. He wants to score. He's confident he can score. He's looking to score every time he gets the ball. And that's not to say that he is a ball hog or that he does not flow within the offense. He looked extremely comfortable out there today. And yeah, they were running sets for him, which is not something I necessarily thought they would be doing this early in the season, although maybe they were just trying it out. But if they're going to, I mean, there's no reason for them not to do that. He's so, he's got such good instincts as a scorer that I think finding ways to get him the ball in opportunities where he has an advantage should be a part of Gonzaga's game plan going forward because he's just a naturally gifted scorer. Uh, defensively, there's a lot of options here. Gonzaga's defense looked really good, and part of that was, of course, playing in an AIA school without a lot of size. Uh, it's certainly going to help make your defensive players look better. Uh, I'm going to mention Drew Timmy here because I was impressed by what he looked like on the defensive end. I think there's a pretty significant caveat in that, again, th- their biggest players were like 6'6", six, 6'7", six, six, so it's a little bit easier to look like a really good shot blocker when you're four or five inches taller than the players you're going up against. But for Drew... This was an area of concern for him heading into the season, not just rim protection and post defense, but also defense away from the rim, you know, moving laterally, all of that stuff. Basically concerns about his ability to play defense on at every level was something that is going to impact his draft stock and was a question coming into this year. And he looked very good on that end of the, on the uh, end of the floor of this game. He didn't look great offensively, particularly in the first half. And I, I should say he didn't look great. He, he took a lot of great shots. He had great footwork. He looked like himself. He, they were just bunnies that weren't going in. Something that I'm ultimately 0%, literally 0% concerned about heading into the season. Him missing a few easy shots in a game that doesn't matter is is really irrelevant to me, especially because he didn't look noticeably slower or like he lost on offense. He looked exactly the same. He just wasn't quite putting the ball in the hoop. But defensively, I think he looked improved, and it's hard to gauge how much of that was truly improvements he made either physically to his body or just reps that he took to help improve you know, the footwork and everything defensively or if it was just playing a not very good team and a not very big team. But I was at least heartily encouraged by how he looked on the defensive end. All right, this next question comes from that crazy uncle Fester at that crazy uncle F on Twitter who asked, any concerns about the point shooting? Nemhard Bolton and Hickman went 0 for 9 combined. That's from three. Strother hitting 50% will make up for that a bit. I just really hope it's opening night jitters. Yeah, yeah, I'm concerned. Uh, I, I Quite frankly, I, I think, you know, I'm not panicking. I wouldn't, there's nothing outside of injury that would make me panic after an exhibition game that the Zags won by 54 points. It's kind of hard to to imagine getting too worked out, worked up about any of this, really good or bad, if we're being honest. But it's not like this wasn't a known issue coming into the season. I think that some people are like, oh, we'll just throw it off. They'll, you know, it, even like the comment of it being jitters. Like, yeah, there's a, there's probably part of that is true. These guys are not going to miss every three they take all season. Obviously, it's going to go up from here. But again, it's not like Nemhard, Nemhard was a great three-point shooter last year or has ever been in his collegiate career. Rasir Bolton is in his fourth season in college, and he shot 36% as a freshman at Penn State, but was well below that his two seasons at Iowa State. Again, he suffered from the same affliction that kind of Ryan Woolridge suffered from when he was at North Texas, where he came to a different set where he wasn't the focal point uh, for opposing defenses, got more open looks, and his three-point percentage improved dramatically. A lot of people expect that to potentially happen with Bolton. They also expected that to happen with Andrew Nempard last year, and his three-point percentage was almost exactly the same from his final season in Florida and his first season at Gonzaga. So it doesn't always happen. 
I think that Gonzaga has an issue where they don't have enough guards who can reliably hit three-pointers. You mentioned in your question, like, well, if Julian hitting 50% will make up for that. He's not going to hit 50% of his threes this year. I think there's a good chance he's 40%, which would be awesome. I mean, outstanding if Julian Strother at this volume, at this rate, hits 40% of his threes, shooting four, five, six per game. That's incredible. And that's a huge boost to this team. Chet Holmgren's going to take more threes than he took today, too. I think Ben Gregg's a factor in the three-point game as well. And I think some of these guards will step up and become capable shooters. I think if you, out of these three guys, if you told me one of them shot 35% this season, I wouldn't be shocked. If you told me two were 35% or higher, I would be a little surprised by that. I just don't think this is a great group of three-point shooters. I hope somebody steps up in this group. I hope all of them are at least adequate, certainly. But but if, again, there are going to be games where these three guys combine to make two or less threes. It's going to happen. And it's going to be... If those are games where the opposing team packs in a zone really tight and the guards can't hit threes, it could get them into a little bit of trouble. Do I think that they're due for some huge relapse this season? No, no, they're going to be fine. They have so much depth, so much talent in the front court that I think they can make up for this. But I would be lying if I said that I'm not at all concerned about the guards outside shooting. It was something I was concerned about coming into the season. Didn't do any favors with them today against Eastern Oregon or whenever you're listening to this, their last game against Eastern Oregon. All right, last, next question, Tim McQuaid at TMZag71 on Twitter, who asks, how should we react with seven blocks and a half? I'm trying to stay realistic. Yeah, so I, I kind of, I was going to lump this in with the Drew Timmy question. Gonzaga's defense looked great. I mean, they looked fantastic in this game. They were flying all over the court. They caused a ton of turnovers at the top of the key, which led to easy runouts and easy lay-ins in transition, or in many cases, thunderous dunks. They blocked a lot of shots at the rim. They were great at limiting second chances. Eastern Oregon rarely got offensive rebounds. Uh, they were playing the passing lanes well. They looked fantastic on defense at every every way that you can. The significant caveat that I already mentioned is this is not a team at this level. Like, Dixie State and Northwestern State and Northern Arizona and many of those other schools that Gonzaga either played last year or is going to play this year or both in some cases are a lot better than the team Gonzaga just played. I think it's really important to not lump like, oh yeah, they're playing Lewis Clark State and Dixie State. Like those are very different programs. Lewis Clark State is NAIA. Dixie State is D1. The level of talent between those two programs is substantial. So I mean, we have to remember that when we're talking about this game. And this is no disrespect to these players at Eastern Oregon or Lewis and Clark State. Like, they're, it's great that they're, you know, playing basketball. It's awesome that they get this opportunity to play against Gonzaga. But they're, they're a pretty, not just a tier below, they're significant tiers below. And so I don't want to overreact too much to something, particularly block shots. I think block shots are, A, not always a reliable metric for the defense in general uh, a lot of block shots is usually in- indicative of a good defensive player they often correlate but it doesn't always mean all that much and in this case I think a lot of the block shots were just height advantages <laughs> you saw a few of them where you know Chet got a lot of block shots because he's very tall and he's going to get a lot of shots blocked he's going to block a lot of shots this year because he's tall like that is going to happen but in this game I think it had a lot to do with that Drew Timmy had a couple good ones um, that were partly size-aided as well. But I do think this is an improved defensive team. Uh, to to kind of try... I know you're trying to stay realistic, Tim, is what you said in your question, and I think it's realistic to look at this 
performance and think this team looks better on defense than the team last year. And that's important because they lost Jalen Suggs, who was a great perimeter defensive player. Like, that's a big loss for this program. They lost Joel and Corey, who were experienced veteran perimeter defensive players. Neither of them were elite on defense, but they were both good quality defensive players, and they replaced them with freshmen. And that's tough to do. But Chet Holmgren's going to be a monster down low. Caden Perry, although I don't know how much he's going to play, we're going to talk a lot about Caden Perry's minutes in the second segment. There's a spoiler for you there. But though he's a good defensive player. Ben Gregg is a good defensive player. Like They have a lot of good front court defensive talent. I think the wings will improve as the season goes on, and I think this is going to be a good defensive team. But I'm not reading too far into them getting a bunch of blocks uh, in a game against an NAIA school. All right, that's going to wrap up our first segment. Coming up in the second segment, we're going to talk more about lineups, more about rotations, how the heck Mark Fuse can figure out what to do with all of these players. But before we get there, I want to tell you about today's sponsor, Prize Picks. Prize Picks is daily fantasy made easy. I love this app, and I know that you will too. Prize Picks is a leader in college sports daily fantasy. They offer more college football props than anyone in the world and offer all the star players from not only the Power 5 schools, but your favorite mid-major players as well, which is obviously appealing to all of us Gonzaga fans. New users that deposit and use the promo code LOCKEDON will receive a 100% instant deposit match up to $100. PricePix allows mixed sport entries, so you can take the over on Chet Holmgren combined with the under on Patrick Mahomes in the same entry. Use the award-winning app on both the App Store and Google Play. Entries can be made in 60 seconds or less. It's that easy. Don't hesitate. Check out pricepicks.com and use promo code Locked On, or go to your app store and download the app today. PrizePix is daily fantasy made easy. All right. In the first segment, we talked all about Gonzaga's game against Eastern Oregon, the exhibition game, the first one the season, the first time students were in the kennel in I think over 600 days something crazy like that it was so good I know all of you who watched the stream or of course all of you who were there it was so great to see the students there to see the kennel packed again to see to hear cheers to just to be in that environment again or at least be exposed to that environment again was an absolute blast Um, second segment we're going to talk more about the game of course we're going to talk more rotation and lineup questions it's gonna be a little bit different format than normal because I have three different questions that all are basically asking the same thing so I'm going to read all three of them and then I'm going to just talk about all of it at once this first question came from Keith Bundy at 8k Dalib on Twitter who asked how much do you read into the order guys came in off the bench and do you think based on how good Greg and Perry looked that they'll get regular if meager playing time this year Again, Keith, not alone in that question. Barry N. at Navy Zag on Twitter, who said, Perry over Greg in the depth chart is surprising to me. I'd have thought Greg's shooting would give him the leg up. So we're talking Ben Greg versus Caden Perry and minutes. And then finally, the third question of this segment comes from T.D. Henry at T.D. Henry on Twitter, who asks, So much talent and Dom Harris will hopefully be in the mix, too. Perry is the extra post defender this team needs. How does everyone get enough minutes to find their groove? Will Mark Few keep a 9-10 to man rotation? I kind of wish that I had like a bell to ring every time I was asked the question if Mark Few is going to keep a deeper rotation. And it's not a criticism of the folks asking this question. I get it. It's a very legitimate question. Uh, The answer in my mind is, I mean, A, the actual answer is I don't know. I have not spoken to Mark Few. I don't know if he plans to unleash a longer rotation for the first time in 21 years. But that second part kind of answers the first part. He's always played 
a super tight rotation. Always, always, always. The man has won over 81% of the games he has coached in his collegiate career. He has been to the finals twice. He has been to the Sweet 16 six years in a row. I don't think he's going to do things dramatically different. And again, I've also said this. I That doesn't mean that I agree necessarily. I don't know that I agree that he should only play a tight eight-man rotation or even seven-man rotation, which he's done in the past. I just think that's what he's going to do. <laughs> so we can talk a little bit more specifically. Uh, in my mind, I think looking at the front court, because that's where the majority of these questions are about. Uh, obviously, Drew Timmy and Chet Holmgren are going to start. Anton Watson is going to play a ton of minutes, I believe, like he did in this game and like he's done in the past two seasons. He is going to be one of the first people off of the bench. If not the first person off the bench, he'll probably come in for either Drew or Chet, depending on matchups, depending on foul trouble, depending on who's got the hot hand, all of that stuff. But I think he's going to be one of the first people on the bench. Those three guys are going to play a ton of minutes up front, a ton, a ton, a ton of minutes up front. I think Drew's a lock to play 30 minutes per night, maybe upwards of 32, maybe some days it's 28, maybe even all the way down to 25, 26 if he's getting into some foul trouble or if they blow team out and they don't need him in the second half. Chet's going to play 28 to 30 minutes per night as well. He's, you know, consensus top three pick in the upcoming draft. He's the number one overall prospect in the game. Like there's no way they're not going to play him a significant amount of time. Again, barring foul trouble or a blowout in those situations. And Anton Watson's got to play at least 20. He's got to play 20, 25 minutes per night. I've speculated on this show before that I think we might see situations where all three of those guys play at the same time. Unless I missed it, I don't believe this happened at all. In this game, I think we saw a lot more of the three-guard lineups. We saw a ton of those. We obviously saw a lot of Julian Strother, particularly in the first half. Second half, I think, reading into any of the rotations that happened, uh, honestly, throughout this game, I think is a little silly. I didn't really answer that portion of the question, but I'm not taking a lot of this. I'm taking it all with a pretty heavy grain of salt, I guess is the best way to put it. But I do think the overall, like the starting five, and then the first two guys off the bench, which I believe were Anton Watson and Nolan Hickman, made sense to me. Hunter Salas came in as well. Those eight guys being the like f- the first eight guys, that's going to be the case. Almost guaranteed. <laughs> I'm pretty, very, very confident until Dominic Harris is healthy. Those eight guys, you're starting five of Nembhard, Bolton, Strother, Holmgren and Timmy and your three guys of Anton Watson, Hunter Salas, and Nolan Hickman. That's your eight-man rotation. Whether he goes deeper than that is whether Ben Gregg or Caden Perry get playing time. This is very unusual and something that I don't think Gonzaga's ever done before, but I've seen it suggested by a few people, and I, based on seeing the way that they played today, I think it's possible that there is like a a sort of nine-man rotation. I don't think he'll ever, I don't think he'll go to 10. And the reason I don't think he'll go to 10 is because I don't think there's a way to play Ben Gregg and Caden Perry consistent minutes every single night, both of them. But I think one of those guys is going to kind of get consistent minutes every night. And either it means that one of them will just ascend above the other one in the playing time rotation and, and the other player will just be pushed out, which seems unlikely to me, although it is obviously possible if one of them is really struggling or, you know, God forbid there's injuries, of course. But I think what's more likely to happen is that it kind of is a matchup-based thing. And the reason I say that is because both these guys have very unique, different skill sets. Caden Perry, <laughs> for those of you who watch this game, is bouncy as hell. My word. The man can jump out of a gym. He's a freak athlete. He's got very advanced footwork for a player his age and his experience level. Uh, he had a post move where he spun on a guy, got underneath him, and just threw it down with two hands. He did it in like a quarter second. If you blinked, you didn't get to see it. It was an elite 
play. I mean, you can tell he's been watching Drew Timmy in practice. He's been learning from him. He is, and just the feel to have that kind of footwork as an 18-year-old freshman is astonishing. Not only that, he blocked a jump shot that was like halfway in the air, <laughs> which is like the, the Gonzaga has not a lot of players with the ability to do that. The Brandon Clark comparison is legitimate and is it's it's been made for Caden Perry for years for a reason. This dude is a freak athlete. And he's got an advanced feel, particularly on defense, for the game. Like, he's already so smart, and he's got a high basketball IQ, and he seems to make the right decisions. He's going to struggle with some stuff. He has a very limited range away from the basket, which hurts his ability to be to play alongside certain players. It hurts his ability to potentially be the high man in a high-low high offense. And it, it makes him a little bit easier to defend when he can only play around the rim. Now, that's that's not the case with Ben Gregg at all. Ben does not have the bounciness that Caden Perry has. He's not going to be the shot blocker that Caden Perry is. And he may not even be the low post scorer that Caden Perry is. But what he has the ability to do is he's a very good outside shooter. Like, there's a reasonable argument that he's one of the best three-point shooters on this team. Like, top three. Top three, I think, is a reasonable argument behind Julian Strother and Chet Holmgren. This is not counting Matthew Lang and Will Graves, who are also good three-point shooters, just not going to play significant minutes this year. But you could argue strongly for Ben Gregg as number three right there on this team in terms of outside shooting. He's got some Killian Tilly to his game. He's smooth. He's fluid. He's a good outside shooter. He's, he's not quite as big as Killian Tilly, I don't think. He's also got good footwork on defense. I don't think he's going to be a, a pure shot blocker, not in the way that Caden Perry is, but he looks like he's going to be a decent rim protector, a good rebounder. These are the things that Killian Tilly was. People remember Killian Tilly mostly for, hey, he's a 6'10 dude who shot a lot of threes and his family played volleyball. Those are the things that people remember about Killian Tilly. Uh, savvy listeners will remember, oh yeah, Andy named his dog after Killian Tilly. So you might have that fact locked into your head somewhere. But Killian Tilly was a good defensive player. Good, good, good on defense. Good rebounder, solid post-defensive player. He wasn't a shot blocker, but he was good down there. Ben Gregg has those skill sets too. He's not as flashy as Caden Perry. He's not as athletic as Caden Perry. Um, he's not as good of a rim protector as Caden Perry, a shot blocker as Caden Perry. But the, I think those two guys complement each other really well. And we saw there was an amazing play uh, middle of the second half where uh, I think somebody missed a shot. Caden Perry got an offensive rebound. He turned. He kicked it out to Ben Gregg. Uh, there was, the two defenders had collapsed on Perry. He recognized that, kicked the ball out to Ben Gregg. Ben caught it with his feet already set, knocked down a three. It was beautiful it was poetic it was it was a fantastic play by two very young players who had the foresight and the wherewithal to know where the other player was to find him you know right at the right time didn't hold on to the ball too long didn't try to force up a shot with two defensive players on him even though he might have been able to do it against these six foot five guys at uh, eastern oregon but made the right decision made the right pass Ben made the perfect read. As soon as the ball was missed, he saw Caden got the offensive rebound. He got into the open spot. He found his spot. He got his feet set. He put his hands up. He caught the pass. He knocked down a three. These are the kind of things that, yes, the coaching staff has worked well with these players and taught them how to do these kinds of things. But this is basketball IQ. This is just these guys having the wherewithal to know where to go, to know where to be, to read each other really well. These guys have not played together for very long at all. They will play together for an entire season this year, albeit not a lot of minutes on the court. But then next year, there's a good chance that's your starting front court. There's a great chance that's your starting front court next year, barring a really, really high-end recruit in the class of 2022, which could obviously happen. It's not like that's, that's this unreasonable thing. Ben Gregg and Caden Perry are probably your starting center and power forward. Now, Anton Watson's going to be in the mix, too. I don't know 
whether he starts and one of those guys comes off the bench or not, I suppose that that is entirely possible. But either way, those two guys are going to play a lot of minutes together next year in the front court, and they're already this advanced at knowing how to play alongside each other. I think it's outstanding. To answer the actual questions that were posed here, instead of just riffing a little bit on playing time and those two players, um, do I think they'll get regular if meager playing time this year? Yes, I kind of touched on that already. I do think both of them are going to play. I think they're both going to average less than 10 minutes per night. I think it's probably closer to six or seven minutes, obviously against inferior opponents where the game's over with 10 minutes to go we might see them play a little bit more in some closer games we'll probably see a lot more of drew and chet and a lot less of these guys um in terms of the depth chart i'm not worried that caden caden came in over greg i think that they're both going to play a fair amount that might be matchup dependent uh and then will mark few play a nine to ten man rotation no i just don't think so i think it might be nine there's a chance it's nine which would be pretty deep for him but the man is really stubborn and playing eight seven if he can get away with it i can't imagine it's going to be seven this year but i have a hard time imagining it's more than nine if it's if it's even nine at all all right two segments down third segment we're going to talk a little bit more we're going to get a little bit away from the actual game that happened on sunday but we're still going to answer some listener submitted questions before we do that though i want to tell you about today's sponsor built bar built bar is the best tasting protein bar ever plain and simple it's a protein bar that tastes like a candy bar built bar has nine delicious flavors including some all-time favorites like raspberry, mint brownie, peanut butter brownie, coconut, and my personal favorite, salted caramel. Of course, Bilt Bar is not only great tasting, they are healthy too. Most Bilt Bar flavors have 17 grams of protein, only 130 calories, and only 4 grams of sugar. Nine amazing flavors, all tasty and all healthy. Go to BiltBar.com now and use promo code LOCKED15 and you'll get 15% off your first order. That's BiltBar.com, promo code LOCKED15, for 15% off your first order. Alright. Third segment coming back to answer more listener submitted questions for Mailbag Monday. This first question comes from Nick Francis at Music in a Blender on Twitter, who says, No Arlauskas today at the end of the game. Do you, was he injured? Yes. So there's a report that came out after the game. He did not play because of an ankle injury as of this conversation which I'm recording at about 6.30 on Sunday. There was not any additional information. I don't know if that means we will get any more additional information ahead of the Lewis and Clark, Lewis Clark scrimmage game, or exhibition game, excuse me, later in the week. But as of right now, Arlauskas is should be considered day-to-day or out. And it's a bummer because this was a good opportunity for him to get some real run, to get a, get a chance to play. You know, I think... I don't know exactly when he would have come in in this game. Obviously, we saw a, quite a bit of Matthew Lang. We saw quite a bit of Will Graves, guys who are not going to be a part of the actual rotation this year. They're the walk-ons. They serve that great purpose where they come in uh, at the end of games and kind of you know get get the crowd going, try to hit the shot to get the, the fans Wendy's or Arby's or whatever the hell the award is when you hit 10 threes in a game. Um, but Arlauskas, I would think, would play before them. But I don't think he's going to be, like I've made it clear, I don't think he's going to be part of the rotation. He's the 11th or maybe 12th man, uh, 12th man when when Dominic Harris is healthy uh, on a roster that's probably going to play eight or nine deep. So it's unfortunate because, again, this would have been an opportunity to see him for seven, eight minutes in a game where I don't think we're, we're going to have a lot of other contests where he's going to get that opportunity. But got to get healthy. Hopefully he's got an opportunity to play against Lewis Clark State or at least early in the season so he's not out for too long. I love Martinez Erlauskas. I've always been a fan of his, uh, but this is this is going to be a really, really hard year for him to get playing time, especially if he's not able to to showcase what he's capable of doing in games like this. 
Next question comes from Fanzastic. That is a lot harder to say than it is to read at Fanzastic on Twitter, who asks, at the end of the game, when there are 20 seconds left, the team with the big league has the ball and they just dribble it out. The players on the floor are reserves that just got in the game seconds before and cherish every second that they play. Why can't they play to the closing buzzer? Yeah, so this is, I mean, the actual answer to this question is basically unwritten rules, uh, quote unquote sportsmanship, which I say with uh, kind of a heavy eye roll. Uh, it's the same. It's it applies in football as well, where you kind of knee it out at the end of the game, and you don't try to. You just try to run out the clock. In basketball, you try to run out the clock. These sports operate on a clock, so that the, the actual game, uh, the outcome of the game, has been determined long before the actual clock runs out. So you have to kind of just pretend you're not trying for the last few minutes to not make the team feel bad. I think it's a little bit. I think it's outdated. I think they're. The rules should exist in some capacity. Like, I, I do think that if, you know, if Drew Timmy was out there, you know, bullying guys and, and like, like really pushing guys hard to get position and like throwing elbows and doing all that stuff with when there's 30 seconds left in a 54 point game, then yeah, that's probably shouldn't happen. And opposing teams would have a justified reason to be frustrated about that, particularly in this very specific situation where Eastern Oregon was not only badly overmatched physically, but they had multiple players sustain fairly significant injuries. I don't know for those of you who are watching, if you saw the Paul Pennington injury, uh, hopefully you did not because it was very graphic, but his arm broke uh, pretty intensely, which was very unfortunate to see. Max McCullough suffered in the injury, the all-time leading scorer in school history at Eastern Oregon. So uh, playing very physically aggressive at the end of games in ways that could harm your opponent when the outcome has been decided is should be a no-go. I agree with that. And football is a whole nother conversation because everything is physically demanding and could potentially harm somebody. But in basketball, with 30 seconds to go, when you, you know, when it's Matthew Lang or Will Graves or Colby Brooks or whomever out there, I think it's kind of silly to not be able to at least shoot the ball. I've never fully, I mean, I understand it. I get why the rule's there. I've never fully bought into it. I think it's a little silly. I think most teams wouldn't care because the same rule sort of applies for Eastern Oregon. Like if they stole the ball, they're, it's frowned upon for them to go try to score. We've seen highlights of guys like go dunk on people when their team's down 48 points and everybody's like, oh, you shouldn't do that. And I don't really understand why. Like, why not? Like, again, it's different if, if it's Drew Timmy or Chet Holmgren or last year if it was Jalen Suggs. But for like Matthew Lang to try to score on somebody in in what will be some of the, you know, maybe he'll play 15 minutes this season. Like, why wouldn't you want it's it just seems like something that that shouldn't be stigmatized the way that it is. So I agree with you 100%. Um that explanation is just that it's an unwritten rule and that it's in the name of sportsmanship. My explanation is that it's dumb and should probably go. All right, last question of the show comes from Jacob Quarter at Jacob Quarter 2 on Twitter who asks, "I want to take one last pleasant look at last season before we get into this year, which national championship runner-up would win in a best-of-seven series? I'm assuming you're talking about between the two Gonzaga national championship runners-up. I did not go into depth on other runners-up from the last few years because that would have taken way too much time. So the 16-17 team is a reminder of what that rotation looked like. Shem, Jonathan Williams, Jordan Matthews, Josh Perkins, Nigel Williams-Goss was your general starting five. Silas Melson, Killian Tilly, Zach Collins, and Rui off the bench. They really only went eight deep that year. Rui played sparingly as the ninth man versus last year's team, Drew Timmy, Corey Kispert, Joel Iyayi, Andrew Nemphard, and Jalen Suggs with Anton Watson and Aaron Cook off the bench and a little bit of 
Umar Balo and Julian Strother again. Last year's team went 70. <laughs> friendly reminder of how tight Mark Few likes to keep things rotation-wise. So this would be super fun. In a seven-game seven series, uh, I think it would be very, very evenly matched. I think these two teams are really good. I think I'd actually lean with the 16-17 team. They don't have a playmaker as dynamic as Jalen Suggs, but Nigel Williams-Goss was a big physical guard, the kind of big physical guard that would have given Jalen Suggs trouble the kind of big physical guard that Baylor had a lot of, and they gave us trouble. Josh Perkins was a pretty big physical guard. So was Jordan Matthews. They had that kind of, I mean, even Silas Melson, he's not quite as big, uh, but those, I mean, those, they had four guards who could really kind of, who would have given this team fits, last year's team fits defensively. And then Shem, Jonathan Williams, Killian Tilly, and Zach Collins was such a ridiculous rotation of big men. Not to say, of course, that, Drew Timmy was not elite because he is, but last year's team lacked depth in the front court. Corey Kispert played a lot of minutes at the four. Anton Watson obviously played a lot of minutes at the four. Umar Balo did not play all that much. Pavel Zakharov didn't play all that much. I think the depth of Gonzaga's front court in the 16-17 season, especially if we're talking over a seven-game series. If we're talking one game, it's a legitimate coin flip. I really believe that. But over a seven-game series, I think that size would win out. Like, so Drew Timmy has to guard Shem. That's going to be a really tough assignment. But who's guarding Jonathan Williams? Kispert? Like, yeah, he could probably handle him a little bit. He's a big, physical, strong dude, but Jay Will's tough. Like, that's tough. And then they bring in Zach Collins. Like, it's just, it would be really hard to deal with over a full game, especially if they ran a lot of high pick and roll stuff with with Williams, Goss, and Perk, who I think would just decimate uh, if Drew, Tim, Drew Timmy out on switches and really cause a lot of problems for that team. All right, that is going to wrap it up for this week's edition of Mailbag Monday. Join me later this week. We got a guest coming on tomorrow's episode or Tuesday's episode, which is going to be a ton of fun. We're going to do a season preview of the entire WCC later in the episode as well. Of course, we're also going to preview the Lewis Clark State game and talk more about any news that comes up throughout the week. It's going to be a lot of fun. Right here on the Lockdown Zags podcast, a reminder it's available wherever you are to get your podcasts and soon to be available on YouTube. Podcast links will also be posted on Twitter at Locked on Zags and on my personal Twitter account, which if you're not following it, you can find it at ScoreZagScore. Thank you again for making this episode your first listen of the day. Now is a great time to make your next listen the Locked on NBA podcast. You can get all your daily, daily NBA updates from a variety of league experts while checking in on your favorite Zags playing at the next level. All right. Thank you all for listening and go Zags.